Mark chapter 8. If you recall last week, I said I'm not going to do the, the sermon points the way I normally do. We're just going to go through the text. I, sometimes you, you try to make the points relevant so people remember the message, and I think it's more vital, it's more important that we remember the Word of God. And so the, the emphasis, even in the slides, we're going to have on the text itself. It's not, you didn't come here to hear what's on Pastor Jeff's heart. You came here to hear what's on the heart of God, right? To hear what the Word of God has to say. I, I was given the honor and the privilege to teach on preaching this past Wednesday night to the Presbyterian Church. And I told them point blank, I said, if I walked into a service and the pastor says, I just want to tell you what's on my heart. I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk right back out. I don't care. I want to know what's on God's heart. I want to know what God's word has to say more than someone else's emotional rant. Amen? So this morning, the title of the message is The Compassionate Provision of Christ. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark. It says, In those days, when there was again a large crowd... And they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the crowd because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. And he kept giving them to his disciples to serve to them, and they served them to the crowd. And they also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. Now, about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. This morning, I, I hope you understand something as we read this, as we, as we look at God's word and we begin to pick up what Mark is putting down for us. We're to be his disciples, aren't we? If we're followers of Christ, are we not seeking to be considered a disciple? We're not called just to make disciples, but be disciples ourselves. And I'll unpack that as we go this morning. But even these men that we see within our text, these 12 men who've been walking through this Gentile territory now for what we believe to be about anywhere from six to eight months with Jesus, these 12 men are going to always be disciples of him. Even when we get to the book of Acts, you're going to see throughout the book of Acts, Peter continues to learn. The 12 continue to learn and see what the Holy Spirit is teaching them, what Christ is teaching them through the Holy Spirit. In fact, even in the book of Acts uh, chapter 6, they say we've got to devote ourselves to time for prayer and study of God's word. They are still learning. And if we're to be his disciples, we have to continually be learning as well. And that's what we can learn from the disciples. And in this simple text, in this, in this story today, I hope you understand this one thing this morning. If there is any point, this is the one point to the message. If we are his disciples, 
Christ gives us what we need to serve others. I'll say that again. If we are truly his disciples, then Christ gives us what we need in order to serve others. Matthew and Mark, of all four Gospels, they all record the feeding of the 5,000. But it's only Matthew and Mark who record the feeding of the 4,000. It's in Matthew 15 and here in Mark chapter 8. But if you remember back in chapter 6, that's where Jesus was feeding the five, the 5,000. And, and he tells the disciples, he says, you give them something to eat, but they can't. So the good shepherd feeds his sheep. Here again, Jesus feeds a large crowd. But in the text, the food goes from Jesus and through the disciples. Mark makes it very clear to us that Jesus gives the food to the disciples who then give it to the crowd. We see a very real hunger within this crowd for Jesus. Yes, they probably came to him for healings, for miracles, but they have stayed for his teaching and for his preaching. In fact, they're going to be so enamored with what he is feeding them spiritually, they're going to neglect to feed themselves physically. Christ is going to show his compassion once again on this crowd as he multiplies loaves and fish. There's much to be said about the disciples and ourselves as well as the crowd, so we're going to get into everything this morning. But when it's all over, we should be feeling satisfied and well-fed spiritually so that we can feed others. First, we have to understand this crowd had a great hunger for Jesus. In verse 1, it says, In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, In those days, now if you recall, like I said, they've been traveling through Gentile country. They've been through the northern part, Philip the Tetrarch's area, and they've been traveling through and Jesus gets the disciples together because he's, he's taking a break from the teaching and he's going to want to feed this crowd. Now in Mark's gospel, Jesus seems to have gone from Tyre through Sidon and then found his way to the Decapolis. If you remember, the Decapolis is where the healing took place in our message last week. And that's the area of the ten cities. And, and some scholars think Jesus went way out of his way. But this story picks up and Mark says, in those days. Now, what Mark is telling us, without outright saying it, is that this, I, I don't know exactly when this happened, but this happened during that time when he was in the Gentile country. We have to remember the gospel writers did not write everything chronologically, but within theme. They wrote thematically as they wrote their gospel accounts. And that's what Mark is doing here. He, in a sense, what he's saying is, okay, I kind of forgot about this story, but I need to make sure I... I Get it to you before I point out that he gets in the boat and goes back to Galilee. So that's what's happening. In those days when he's in the Gentile country, this other thing took place, okay? And so the gospel writers, like I said, they do this. And that's not to argue that they don't do things chronologically. Word is spreading after all, and, and people have seen the miracles. People have heard about these things that Jesus is doing. Um, likely, it's very well known in the region that Jesus healed this deaf, mute man that we talked about last week. Uh, I kept calling him a blind man for some reason. I don't know why I did that, but uh, he was deaf and mute. And it's likely that they've heard about the, the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's demon-possessed daughter. And so they've come to hear Jesus preach and teach and talk. This is all, if you recall, this is the effects of the demoniac 
who was in the Gerasene region of the, of the Decapolis, this is because of his preaching, his preparing the way for Jesus to return to this region and begin to uh, heal and teach. In fact, he's proving what the demoniac has said about him, that he is the Jewish Messiah. And so this large crowd comes together. Now, like I said, they probably came for the miracles, but they have stayed for the preaching. We see this evidenced in Matthew's account. Matthew, if you remember, I read this passage last week, but I'll read it again. And large crowds, this is Matthew 15, 30-31, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Do you understand what that's saying? Is that because of Jesus' miracles, and then because of his teaching, the Gentiles are converting. The Gentiles are worshiping the God of Israel. They've heard about these things, and now they stay, and the crowd continues to grow because they want to hear what Jesus has to say. Mark tells us they had nothing to eat. Now, some of this crowd could have left, and they could have come back, but that that would have mean they missed something, right? So they stay, and whatever food they brought with them, it's it's running out. These people are, are starving not just for food, but for the words of Christ. In chapter 6, we saw something similar. The people saw where Jesus was heading in the boat, and so on foot, they raced. They went almost twice as far out of their way to get to Jesus to meet him when he landed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They were so hungry for the word of God. They were so hungry for his teaching. But he'd only spoke to that crowd for a day, and they got hungry. How long has he been talking to these people? Verse 2 says, I feel compassion for the crowd because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Three days of just being with Jesus. Not just getting miracles, but listening to him. Hearing his message. Listening to his preaching. Now some people might get upset if we go past 1130 and they can't beat a pizza ranch on time. I know, I I used to be one of those people. (laughs) Ask my wife about the time I cracked open a bag of M&Ms during the middle of a guy's sermon because I was hungry and he was going a while. But three days in, these people are not budging because they're spiritually starving. Remember, this is a people who lived amongst idols. They worshiped the Roman gods. These were pagans. This is a region that tolerated a man who had been possessed by a legion of demons and they, they just let him stay outside the city. This is a region that desperately needed to hear the word of truth. They needed to know about God's kingdom and about his promised Messiah. And honestly, these people are under judgment. Their hunger shows they are under the judgment of God. The Old Testament makes it very clear that the worst kind of famine is not one of bread, it's not one of meat, but it's the word of God. In Amos chapter 8, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares Lord Yahweh, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of Yahweh. People will wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, but they will not find it. And these people have found it. And they've latched on to it. And they don't want to lose it. They don't want to leave it was in town recently, and I uh, began talking with this young lady, and she said, 
aren't you the pastor who went verse by verse through Revelation? Aren't you the guy who taught about that stuff? I said, yeah. I said, you don't go to my church. How'd you hear about that? Oh, my sister watched you on YouTube. My sister watches you guys on Facebook. And it confirms something I've, I've suspected for a long time. In fact, I've shared this with some of the board and I've shared this with some of the leaders in the church that, that our church, there are a lot of people in our community who will go and attend another church, but then they want to watch us online. Like we're, we're everybody's little secret. And I don't say that to put the other churches down. I don't say that to put other pastors down. I'm sure they're doing fine. But the fact is there is a famine of the word of God. And this is, they know that where they can come and find it. They know they can hear it here. And they, they may not step foot in our door, so they just tune into YouTube. They tune into Facebook when they can. So this morning, I want to say something directly to the camera. Keep watching. You don't have to be here, but you know where you're going to get fed. So if you're home and you're watching this right now, if this is on Tuesday or Wednesday and you're watching our YouTube, keep doing it. That's okay. Keep going to your church and, and doing that thing. But you know this is where we, we will always be willing to serve you and to feed you the word of God. If you're hungry, this is, this is more than a, this is a trough for Jesus and we're, we're happy to give it to you. Now here in our text, Jesus does something slightly different than he does previously in chapter 6. He vocally says, I feel compassion. Now Mark just records that Jesus did have compassion back in chapter 6, verse 34. But here he openly confesses his heart for these people, for these lost souls, this Gentile crowd. The word compassion, some of you might remember, it's one of my favorite Greek words. It's splunknizomai, which is really fun to say. It sounds like a good German word, doesn't it? Splunknizomai. Because every time I hear people talk in German, I just think they're angry at each other. But it's just German, so... But it means he's moved with pity. He's moved with mercy and deep compassion. In fact, if you recall, when I first used this word, it it literally means he's moved in his bowels. Because in this day and age, that's where they thought your emotions were. And I said it then, and I'll say it again. The church needs a bowel movement. It's humorous, you'll remember that, but really, we need a real move of compassion. He had such a deep compassion because he saw them for what they really were. They were lost, starving sheep. And he desires so badly to bring them into the, whole, to, to the fold, to heal them, to help them, but most of all, to feed them. At this point, though, they're, they're not just spiritually hungry. They've become physically hungry as well. They've been listening. And, and like I said, what snacks they probably brought, what food they had on them, it's gone. And they're so hungry. In fact, Jesus says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. If he sends them home, they will pass out on the road. They haven't eaten in days. Now, they're not purposefully fasting here. They're just going without. They're so encapsulated. They're so captured by his preaching. They forgot to eat. They're not concerned with food. They dare not, they're in the Decapolis. Cities are are all around them, but they dare not even run into town to get a loaf of bread because they're going to miss a morsel of what he's feeding them, what he's feeding their souls, what he's feeding their spirits. 
Now back in chapter 6, the disciples said, send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus' reply then was, no, you give them something to eat. But here in our text, the feeding of the 4,000, nobody, nobody wants to leave. Nobody goes to Jesus and says, send the crowd away. In fact, Jesus himself has to take a break. And he says, these people need to eat. It's almost like Jesus is testing his disciples here. Without asking, Jesus is implying, what do you think we should do here, guys? What's the solution here? What he's doing is he's giving the disciples a chance to show their faith, to practice what he has been teaching them, to demonstrate what he has shown them in the past. Because the people are starving. And you know, Jesus has been... In the last year of his ministry now, he's about three-fourths of the way through that year. And basically, he's saying to them, what are you going to do when I'm gone? How are you going to feed them when I'm not here? It's going to be left to you. And the fact is, the disciples had Jesus for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, going on three years. These people just had him for three days. And Jesus is saying, okay, guys, how do you think we should feed these starving people? The disciples had been paying attention, but their hearts had been hardened. That's what Mark tells us happened after the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Mark six fifty two. for they had not gained any insight about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. The question for us quickly becomes, are we also paying attention? Is our heart hardened? Do we see those who are starving near us? And do we feed them? Do we give them the word of God? Or do we harden our hearts and we say it's for us, it's not for them? Are we being fed ourselves? Are we continuing to learn? Are we feeding our souls, our spirit, the word of God? Do we let the red letters of our Bible draw us in? Are we so enamored with the Bible, with God's word, and with times of prayer that we're okay missing out on other things? Missing out on TV, food, the pleasures of this world, for work. Is is, Is his word more important to us than those things? Are we desperate for just another morsel of his teaching? These people were so hungry for the word of God, they missed three days of work, three days of school, three days of fun with their friends, three days of meals. And often we read that and we go, "Ah, what a nice story. We miss the point. We recognize the, the hunger of our own souls, the hunger of those around us and say, Lord, what would you have me feed them? What would you have me give them? How will you help? How will you have me serve? Second thing we must ask is if we want to be used by him to feed their hunger. Verse 4, the disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? When we look at the disciples' response, where will anyone be able to find enough bread? Well, they're surrounded by cities. If they wanted to, they could go and get some. They've not forgotten the 5,000 already. It's it's been about six months or so, so we might think that they had. But how do you forget something like that? This man stood in front of them and literally made bread appear out of nowhere. He made fish appear out of nowhere and fed almost 20,000 people, we figured. We can be a little hard on them because they're hard-hearted. 
In fact, Jesus later in verse 21 of this chapter, he's going to scold them and he's going to say, do you not yet understand? In other words, do you still not get it? Do you not understand what I've been trying to give you and teach you? You notice he doesn't say, did you forget? He says, do you not get it? He assumes they remember. You couldn't forget something like the feeding of the 4,000 or the 5,000. They've seen what Christ can do. And so ultimately we come to two conclusions. Either option A, they're just lazy and they don't want to be used. And that's possible. We see that in the church even today. You can say amen, but if we're being candid, if we're being honest, right? Or option B, they're so hard-hearted, they're so hard-headed, they've refused to learn. I don't think it's option A with these men. I don't, I don't, I can't be convinced of that because every time things get hard, what do they do? They go back to work. They're not lazy. In fact, they're going to do exactly what Jesus tells them to do without any question, without any grumbling. They just do it almost every time. I don't think it's option A. They're not lazy. In John's gospel, Jesus is resurrected. The disciples have seen him. They've interacted with him. They've seen the nail scars. They've seen the hole in his side. And they go back to work. Jesus shows up and he cooks them breakfast. And and it picks up in verse 15. So when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my lambs. Have you ever stopped to ask, what are these? What's Jesus referring to here? Now, a handful of people might tell you it's the other disciples. And in a sense, he's saying, do you love me more than they love me? And Peter, in arrogance, is saying yes, but that's not what happened here. Some people might say that, well, he's asking, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? That's not what's happening here. Maybe he's talking about Peter's family or or the city or something. No. In fact, if we understand the text and the context, Jesus is likely pointing to the boats and the nets and the water. And he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than what's familiar? He says, yes, Lord, I, I love you more than that. He says, then tend my lambs. In other words, trust me to feed the sheep, Peter. You just be willing to be the hands that provide the food. You just be the hands that are willing to give. Don't be so hard-hearted. Don't be so stubborn. Don't be so unteachable. You stop being a disciple of Christ and serve where you are. We know it's the hardness of their heart. We know it's the stubbornness of their minds. That'll be what keeps them from getting it right. And we're going to see that next week in part two. This is actually a three-part a little mini-series, I guess, here in this series. But the truth is, all they needed was a little bit, and Christ can feed even more than these people. But they see the size of the crowd, the desolation of the area, and they say to themselves, how can this be done? This is not, I'm sorry, this is a desolate place, but it's not a deserted place. The Greek word used for desolate is the same word, the same root word that's used back in chapter 6, but it's Slightly different based on the context and the tense of the word. If you remember back in chapter 6, Jesus has the crowd sit on the grass, but here he has, has them sit on the ground. And if you don't know the difference, you forgot last summer where we didn't have any rain, right? It's nice having green grass this year. I know the rain caused some problems, but still looks nicer. What the disciples are saying here, without actually saying it, is the same thing we say every time a situation seems insurmountable, seems 
so difficult because in our hearts we whisper, God, are you really big enough for this? Can you really do this? Or should I find a solution on my own? What Christ is teaching them is to be willing to serve with what they have in spite of the circumstance, in spite of the location. In verse 5, he goes on. He was asking them, how, asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Well, last time they only had five, so they're already better off. Right? Where's their faith? You know, through the centuries, people have tried very hard to manipulate this text and try to discount this entire story and say Mark is just repeating himself. Mark is just telling the same story, tweaking a few things to prove a point. That's not what's happened here. Although that would mean Matthew had to do the same thing. They try to say that this is just another repetition of, of Mark. It's not. It's, this, it's a different story altogether. It's an opportunity to reaffirm what Jesus has been teaching the disciples, what they should have already learned. They should be excited. Jesus, I know what you can do. How do you want to do it this time? I know what you're capable of. Just tell me where to stand. Tell me what to do. Tell me where to go. And instead, "Mm, can it really be done? They show their doubt. Some of the best ways to learn, by the way, is through repetition. Jesus knows this better than anyone. He's the good teacher, right? Back in Mark 6, Jesus feeds a multitude. He's going to do that today in our text. And He's going to cross the sea, and he's going to do that today in our text. And then he has a conflict with the Pharisees, and we'll see that next week. He does it again. In fact, they're just, it's like they're waiting on him to get there so they can pick another fight with him. And Jesus talks to the Seraphonician woman about bread, and we're going to see him talk to the disciples about bread. Jesus will perform a healing, doing some really weird stuff with the deaf-mute man, and then we're going to see him do that again with a blind man. There's a confession of faith. We're going to see that come from Peter later. The consistent thing within this story is not what Jesus is doing, but what the disciples are not getting. What they're not understanding and what it means. You guys have heard me say this multiple times. Jesus can make a deaf ear open, a blind eye see, a lame person walk, but the greatest miracle that he ever does is taking a hard heart and opening it and softening it, changing that person. So in our text, last week, this week, next week, and so on, we're going to see Jesus perform incredible miracles. But the greatest miracle we've got to ask is, can the disciples' hearts be changed? Can their hard hearts, their stubborn minds be changed? Can he convince them that he is who they've suspected him to be? And teaching them what that truly means as the cross looms in the background. As he heads closer and closer to it. When Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? I, I think the unspoken question that Jesus has on his lips is, and why aren't we feeding them then? Why aren't you guys on this already? Because their eyes are on what they don't have versus what they do have. Let me rephrase that. Their eyes are on what they don't have versus who they do have. David Wilkerson tells this, he writes this, he says, You've heard of the prayer of faith. I believe there is a mirror image of this prayer, a prayer that is based on flesh. I call this the prayer of unbelief. Let me pose a question to you. Have you ever heard the Lord say, quit praying, get up off your knees? 
The Lord spoke these very words to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? It's Exodus 14.15. The literal Hebrew meaning of the verse is, Why are you shrieking at me? Why all the loud pleading in my ears? Why would God say this to Moses? Here's a godly man praying. In the crisis of his life, the Israelites are being chased by Pharaoh. There's no escape. Most Christians would react the way Moses did. He got alone with the Lord and poured out his heart in prayer. But what God heard was Moses shrieking, and he told him, enough. At that point, God might have said, you have no right to agonize before me, Moses. Your cries are an affront to my faithfulness. I've already given you my solemn promise of deliverance, and I have instructed you specifically on what to do. Your tears are not the cry of a broken heart now. They are the tears of self-pity. It is time to stop crying. In other words, the disciples, it's time to stop asking and get defeating. It's time to start serving. It's time to stop, stop. Do what I've shown you to do. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And we say, I don't have any bread. We still look for it. And yet we could feed them what we do have. Give them what we were given. Well, I'm not a Bible scholar. So share your testimony. Share what he's changed within you. Well, my testimony is boring. I struggled with this for years. I grew up in church. I wasn't saved out of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know. Finally, someone came along and said, well, Jeff, you don't have to be in a biker gang to have an awesome testimony. You can share what God saved you from. Share the joy in your heart, the faithfulness God has shown you. Share what you have that he has given you. That's, that's the teaching that the disciples need to get here. Verse 6, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. He kept giving them to his disciples to serve them and they served them to the crowd. Again, he directs them to sit on the ground. This is a deserted place, but it's not a place of despair. This is near all those cities like I've mentioned. Ten cities. They could have ran to get food. But you notice, unlike last time, nobody goes to Jesus and says, Hey, uh, it's going to cost this amount of money, and we can feed these people. Remember, if you recall, Philip went to Jesus in John 6. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for the buying of food for these people. So the implication might be the disciples are saying, we know you can feed 5,000 Jews, but will you dare feed 4,000 Gentiles? Jesus implied back in verse 3 that they should be the ones feeding the people. And the disciples' reply, in a sense, is, why don't you do it? Why won't you do something? So Jesus does. He prays. He breaks the bread. We saw him do this previously. He looks to heaven. He blesses the food. He breaks the loaves. He gives thanks. But then he gives it to the disciples. The disciples give it to the crowd. The same thing he does for us. He gives us himself for us to disperse to those around us. He is the bread of life. That's what he says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So catch this. He gives them the bread, and they serve. The word that is used for serving there is parathosin. It's a Greek word, and it means they set it before them. They put it within reach of the people. He gave, they gave them something they weren't able to get on their own. But if they're willing, they can reach out and take it for themselves. 
So many times we we don't want to share the gospel. They don't want to hear it. You know what? You're not serving them. You're not giving to them. You're not bothering to put it within reach and let them have the opportunity to reject it. We give them the bread of life. What they do with it is up to them. That's the whole point of the parable of the sower. Do we put it within reach of those who need him? And if it's true, if we truly are, and I believe it is, we're surrounded by people who are starving for the word of God. Why are we not sharing it more? Why are we not planting the seed of God's word? Why are we not putting the rocks in their shoes to make them think about it as they walk away? Do we take what he has given us and use it for his glory, or are we only going to share it when it's for our own? Verse 7 says, They also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. Now Mark and Matthew's account is almost word for word the same, except here. Matthew throws in the fish right away. Mark, Mark kind of adds it as an afterthought. Oh, and by the way, he also had some fish. How many fish did he have? A few. That's at least three. How many did he have last time? Two. So again, he's got more food than he had last time. Last time they had five loaves, now they have seven. Last time they had two fish, now they've got a few. Last time the crowd was 5,000, as many as 20,000. This time it's 4,000, as many as 16,000, most scholars think. Because Matthew adds, besides women and children, still significantly less people. But more to work with, right? So Jesus gives direction. The word says he ordered them, but in the Greek it's not a command. It's not even an urging. Jesus, Jesus just tells them, go do it. It's the Greek word apen. He told them. There's no urging. There's no compelling. Just serve the fish too. The disciples do as they're told. No questioning, no fussing, no grumbling. They do just what Jesus tells them to do because that's what a disciple does. They listen and they obey the master's voice. The word for disciple, by the way, and this is just kind of a little rabbit trail, but I think it's important to note this. Some of you may be familiar with it. The same word Jesus uses in in Matthew 28, 19, go make disciples. Very key word. In the Greek, in the the tense, it's used in Matthew 28, 19. It's mathetosete. It comes from the Greek word mathetis. And it means a believing learner or a learning believer. It's someone who believes but continues to learn. Someone who learns as they believe. That's what a disciple is. Someone who's willing to serve. Someone who's willing to listen. Someone who's willing to learn. And someone who's willing to even be corrected when the time comes. But that's the hard part about discipleship. That's the part we don't like, isn't it? We're okay with learning when it's learning what we want. When it tickles our ears. When it's fun. We're okay with the, the serving when it's serving fun in a fun way. We don't like the hard teachings, and God forbid we ever get correction. We really wouldn't want that. We'll share our faith when it's convenient. Oh, man, and we're Pentecostal. That shouldn't happen. That should never be said of us. The truth is, we'll go to a conference and we'll have a Holy Spirit moment that may or may not be biblical. We don't even question it. And we we talk a big game and then we come home and it just dies. 
We're bold at the conference. We're bold in the church service. But when it comes to the public, we're cowards for Christ. Martin Luther spoke of such a person when he was under attack himself. He said, in your hiding place, you use the most fearless language as though you were full of three Holy Spirits. Such unseemly boasting reveals clearly what kind of a spirit you are. You've got to ask, if you, if you got this Holy Spirit experience and you come back and, and you're not willing to witness, it's not the Holy Spirit, by the way. In fact, I would really pray about that. Because every time that we see the Holy Spirit move in the book of Acts, there's revival. There's lost people coming to Christ. They're not stealing from other churches. They're bringing the unsaved to Jesus. So in here, we can talk a big game. We can, we can talk a good fight. But when it comes to the arena, when it comes to the playing field, that's where rubber meets the road. That's where it really matters, church. So many Christians, they read the Gospels, and in their pride, they say, oh, I like Peter. I'm just like Peter. I'd, I'd run through brick walls for Jesus, and I wouldn't even think about it. That is not Peter. You misunderstood entirely. Peter is a coward. When things get really rough, John tells us he, he, he follows Jesus at a distance. He's afraid. That's his time to stand and fight. That's his time to make an argument. That's his time to be in front of everybody. And he, a little girl makes him deny Christ. That's Peter. At times, Peter's a blowhard, yeah. He talks tough when things are going well. When things get sticky, he gets a lot quieter if you pay attention. The truth is, Modern Christians today, we are less than Peter. We are so much less. Peter was willing to kill for Christ, but he wasn't willing to die for Christ. And Christians today, they say, well, I'm willing to die for Christ, but we're not willing to serve for Christ. I'll go to the gallows, but don't ask me to to help lead a class or do nursery or anything like that. But if we truly are his disciples, Christ has given us more than we need. To serve him. Finally, Jesus must always be enough to satisfy us if he is to satisfy others. Verse 8, it says, They went and or, sorry, they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. The crowd eats and they're satisfied, just like back in chapter 6. And if you remember that sermon, if you were here for that, and you're a parent. You remember, that's probably the biggest miracle that happened in this moment, right? Nobody complained about the food. Nobody came to Jesus and said, could I get some salt and pepper over here? Could I have a little bit of lemon to sprinkle on my fish? Could I get some jelly for my roll? Nobody says that. Everyone eats and they're satisfied. This is a thing we must learn as followers of Christ, to be satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. It goes back to something I mentioned a few weeks before, a few weeks ago. Something we see in the text of becoming a mature believer. This is what Paul describes in in Philippians 4.12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. How can Paul say that? Because he's most satisfied in Christ. In 1 Timothy, in And in Titus, in Paul's description of what makes a pastor or what makes a deacon, you realize he's not describing anything special. He's saying at the very least, they have to be a mature believer. They have to be a mature Christian. At the bare minimum, a leader in the church 
must be mature and satisfied in Christ. Paul says that at the very least that has to be done. And some of us today would sit back and say, well, that's easy for Paul to say. He was like the most mature Christian ever. He he did miracles. He could do incredible things. He had a brilliant mind. He was also beaten five times with a whip, 40 lashes minus one. That means he's beaten almost to death. He was also beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked three times, spent a night and a day adrift at sea, received other beatings without number. You see, so many people, they want the power of Paul, but they don't want the beatings that power gave him. I'll say that again because you might have misunderstood me. The power gave him the beatings, not the beatings giving him the power. Who he was in Christ, there was a cost to it. And each time he got back up and said, still I will serve Christ. People want the ministry of Paul, but they don't want Paul's prayer life. They want the rank, they want the praise that Paul receives now, but they don't want his prison sentence then. The mature believer is satisfied in Christ alone. And when you're satisfied in something, what do you do? You talk about it. You try to share it. You want other people to experience that. You're happy to give it to other people. When's the last time you ate at a, at a new restaurant and it was an amazing experience and, and you didn't tell anybody about it? It's not very American of you if you can say, I've done that because we like to take pictures and post it to social media of what we ate, right? We witness about it. We share it. What about the last time we watched a movie that made us laugh so hard we cried? How'd you get through the day the next day without telling somebody about that? You probably didn't. Or tell a story about the last time you went hunting or fishing and you had a good day there. Shared a good day at work. An interaction with an old friend. Because we get satisfaction from those things, but we not find our satisfaction in Christ to the point where we share Him and we serve Him with all that we have. And they had seven large baskets left. Last time there were 12. And you're probably wondering why I have coolers on the platform this morning. It's not because I was too lazy to put them away after the parade yesterday, I promise. The 5,000, when he fed the 5,000, it was the Greek word kofenos, which described the baskets. And it would have been about this size. It's something you pack your lunch in. Something you're going to carry with you on a trip. It's something handy. This is the size of basket. There were 12 of them, about this size. But when Jesus feeds the 4,000, it's about two of these big boys. It's the type of thing you'd use to haul grain to the market. The Greek word sporidus. It's a huge basket. It's like a laundry hamper. The implication is there's even more food left over this time when he goes to feed the hungry Gentiles. He's here to feed not just the Jewish person, but the the Gentile as well. The broken pieces that are left over are going to feed the disciples later on. Maybe give to people who have a longer journey going home. But the truth is, the, the point of that being included is that the truth of Christ continues to save, uh, continue to sustain us, continues to feed us even after the preaching ends. If we truly receive it, it will continue to nourish us as we leave, as we go away. That's why we encourage taking notes. Take, take the message with you. Listen again on the podcast or the YouTube or whatever. Ask questions. Dig deeper. Keep eating the bread. Keep eating the meat. Verse 9 says, Now about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. This is slightly different. 
than it was in the previous time. There was anywhere between 16,000 people, and Jesus sends them away. He has to. He's been talking for three days. Before, in the 6,000 story, he sent the disciples on their way. Then he stayed behind and dismissed the crowd. He got away to pray, and then he walked on water and caught up to him. if you remember that. But it's been three days. Three days of constantly preaching, healing. He's tired. Yes, he's God, but he still has a physical body. He still has vocal cords that are very likely very raw at this point. So Jesus dismisses the crowd. And he gets in the boat with his disciples. Matthew kind of combines the last two verses of our passage. He says, sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Mark tells us in verse 10, Immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Now that's not a contradiction. Matthew's talking about a region. Mark is talking about a district. So Mark is even narrowing it down even more. In fact, Dalmanutha is so little, so little is known about this. There's only very little archaeological evidence that proves it even exists. But the point is Jesus has gone back to his base of operations. He's in Capernaum. He's in that region, the Galilean region. And while he was on the boat, we, we should hope he got some sleep because as soon as, he hits, as soon as his feet hit the shore, he's got to deal with those Pharisees again. There must be time to rest in ministry, a time where we serve. And yeah, we may serve to the point of exhaustion, but we minister best when we're refueled and retooled and ready to go again. Jesus understood this both for his disciples and for himself, and he models it for us. And maybe I'm just preaching to myself today, but we've got to remember that as well. It's one reason we do the summer break here at Faith, to give our leaders, our teachers, a chance to to catch their breath and enjoy the summer with their families, to get a break, to be refueled before we begin the fall semester. And when we're given rest, we should make the most of it. We should do what we can, find ourselves satisfied in Christ, filled with Christ, serving Christ with all he's given us, serving others as we serve him if we are indeed his disciples. Because from there he gives us what we need to serve. I'm going to move to close in just a moment, but what we truly see within this text is the compassion of Christ, but also a compassion we should share with Christ. Something we should share with Him for the lost. That compassion should move us to serve, to love, to bless, to help. Not in a social services sort of way, or or let's direct them to social services, but in a way the church is commanded to show compassion. Jesus said, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And if we meet all of those needs, but we don't give them Jesus, we fail. We show our compassion in serving, but Christ shows his ultimate compassion at the cross. And if we don't give them that, we have really given them nothing. We've given... If they only gave them something temporary. Hebrews tells us he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You understand, his compassion for humanity reached a boiling point at the cross when he placed himself there, when he came as a man in order that he might become merciful, compassionate, faithful, high, that compassionate high priest interceding on our behalf before the Father. He was a propitiation for our sins. He took our sins upon Himself. 
He died in our place. It's one thing to feed a lot of people. You know, that can be chalked up to a magic trick, an illusion, a Chris Angel type of street performance, even a fairy tale. But it's quite another thing for someone to die like a criminal when they've committed no crime. And their death changes history, changes the world, and still changes individual lives even today. Truth is, Jesus was willing to go to the cross to bear the full weight of divine punishment for our sins in order that we might be delivered from the sin that leads us to hell. His compassion is more than just for our physical needs. It's for our spiritual needs. So I would ask, how can we not serve him? How can we not take what he's given us and pass it along to those around us if we are his disciples? Because if we are his disciples, he's given us all we need. He gave, him, he gave us himself on the cross of Christ. Stand with me today. We're going to close in prayer. And last week, I, you can stand with me today. Everybody, Don't stay sitting. Stand up. Okay. Last week, I gave this challenge. I said, on your way out the door, talk about Jesus. Share Jesus, right? The mute man was told his whole life he couldn't talk. And then when he could talk, he was told, don't tell anybody. So that we could go and tell everybody. So this week, This today, when you leave, there's no formal altar call this morning. If you want prayer, we're happy to pray with you. But this morning, as you leave today, as you go and you do your Father's Day things and you enjoy your afternoon, ask Christ, how can I serve someone else? The best way to serve someone else is giving them Jesus, sharing your testimony, sharing what he's done for you. But ask him, what can I do for someone else? What can I do to be your hands? What can I do to distribute your bread of life? That's the challenge for the church this morning. Father God, we just pray right now that you make us willing servants. Father, that we continue to do what you modeled for us. To feed those who are hungry spiritually. Feed those who are hungry physically. Father, that we be used by you. Fascinating that Jesus came as a carpenter's son and he uses us like tools to build his kingdom. Father, I pray you use this church today. That this not be seen as a sanctuary, but as a launch pad as we go forth into the community, to those around us, and we share your love, your compassion with those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.